Welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are wrapping up a series that we've been doing for the past several weeks about violence throughout Scripture. Uh, we spent many, many weeks talking about violence throughout the Old Testament and what that means. And last week we um, spent some time talking about violence in the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation. And so we're kind of going to... What are we going to do today, Sarah? We're going to wrap things up, right? I mean... Did we ever really? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So there's a part of me that wants to say, yes, we're going to finally answer all of the questions today, but really, I think we might just be asking more questions and then shrugging our shoulders and going, all right, next week's Advent. <laughs> so let's be honest. Let's set the bar low enough that we can accomplish what we've advertised. We are going to be raising more questions. This is a can of worms episode. And, and then we're going to discuss them. Are we going necessarily come up with an answer? Maybe, <laughs> but not necessarily because we are theologians and we are, I would say, we are pretty comfortable in living in the mystery and just being okay with asking questions, wrestling with our faith and continuing on with our lives. It's job security. Let me give ourselves an apology in the, in the classic sense, we need a, a reasoned defense of why our approach is what it is. The, yeah, there's a sort of cynical, a preacher's job is just to keep generating more questions so people come back and listen to their next sermon. Um, an alternative possibility is, I think, um, without letting our egos get too big, we try, and we come from traditions that try and treat the biblical witness with the integrity of letting the voices speak even when they are sometimes are in tension with one another, and rather than treating it like there's one place you get uh, the answer to whatever question, you know, like, so what's the one verse where the Bible talks about is violence? Okay, that's not how the Bible works. It's, it's not like that. And because of that, we're constantly... Um, dealing with, well, here's how this story works, here's how this story works, and then there's a narrative flow to things, too. We've talked throughout this whole series, too, about the importance of narrative and where we are in the story makes a difference, too. Um, that Revelation 21's answer about violence is eventually God makes a whole new creation where it's not necessary, so it, there isn't any. But also, I don't live in that world right now, and what do I do when we're faced with situations where terrible things happen, um, and we're left asking, are there times when uh, violence is the least worse option because it stops other worse violence? And that, those are the kind of questions that we're left with today. And maybe that's a place for us to start. It's all, of all the things we've been looking at in biblical stories, it's great to know Bible stories, but at some point you've got to move on to, well, what do I think about situations where uh, Hitler invades Poland in 1939? What do, you, what do you do about that? Is the, be is the best solution let him because that's not, they tried that for a while and it never stopped him. Um, and were there times when violence is the only thing that's acceptable or, or only possible solution? I, I don't know. So it, I guess those are the kind of questions that we're left with now. And, and I think it's good that we wrestle with those questions. Mm -hmm. I've been reading uh, Gregory Boyd for the past, well, week, so not very long. But um, he, he starts, he, he writes about how, for him, the foundation of his faith is that yeah, that story of where Jacob is wrestling, like physically wrestling with God, and God renames Jacob Israel. And from that point onward, his
his descendants is called the Israelites, those who wrestle with God. And I think that that is part of the foundation of our faith, is that we can wrestle with our those big questions. We can wrestle with our faith. And we can even wrestle with God and our, you know, and God responds to us of like saying, hey, you know what, this makes me uncomfortable. Like, you seem like you're acting like very differently. Like, what's going on? And, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the atmosphere in which we, we try to engage both the scriptures and our lived experience with God is one of this the constant wrestling back and forth, which isn't conducive to easy pat answers. That, that's important, yeah. So the thing we are wrestling with today and what we have been wrestling with is violence in the Bible. And specifically... Things like when we see stories, whether the ones that we had talked about or even other stories that we didn't get to this time, of violence in the Bible, is God authorizing it? Yeah, and it seems to me like we've looked at different answers depending on what kind of situations Mm -hmm. we're talking about. There are some times where a terrible thing happens and we've even made the point in looking at it, the, the text doesn't ever say God made this bad thing happen. It, sometimes bad things happen, and it is not God authorizing or encouraging or cheering for to making it happen, or even hardening anybody's heart to make it happen. Sometimes terrible things happen, and the story is remembered as a way of saying, look how terrible things get when people turn to their own devices. Good point, God. Um, there are other stories where the biblical text casts God as the, the either behind the scenes or overtly saying, do this, you know, kill this person, or, or kill these people, or invade this town, or something like that. Um, I think that still leaves begging the question. I think I might have raised this earlier on, and you mentioned Greg Boyd's uh, perspective in his books, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. He suggests it is possible that human authors took events where violence happened and assumed God must have authorized this, and God allows this to be part of the inspired text, even though one day when we get to glory, God will say something like, I let you call me the bad guy. This was not me. I wasn't actually wanting you to kill people. But you need some. This is how your mind. This is the closest how your mind process how I work through providentially through history, and that looks to you like you made this terrible thing happen. Um, that's a little bit something like maybe when I take my kid to the doctor when they were real little and they hated getting shots, and I knew the thing that needed to happen was the thing that would cause them pain, and yet it was also something that would protect them from you know rubella or mumps or whatever. So, yeah, I'm willing to do that. So I get ascribed to being the author of their pain for that day. I authorize it, and yet my intention is not to will their pain, but to protect them from disease. And from the kid's vantage point, Dad caused me pain today. Well, and there will come a point in my kid's adult uh, realization, oh, Dad wasn't trying to hurt me. This is, this is how this looked, and it, yes, it came at collateral cost of pain for me because that's how the world works. Um, it, it, Boyd's case seems to be something like that may be what we discover when we get to glory and discover that God has not directly authorized the things that we imagine God to directly authorize. That, like, like I, I think that when I raised this the first time, I'm not sure that's foolproof as a as an interpretive strategy because in some ways it seems too neat and tidy. Um, but it does seem it's worth at least exploring that um, sometimes God even drops hints that we bring assumptions about who God is and God uh, turns out to not be what we expected. Like Jonah with the Ninevites, you know? I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring the message to you, because I knew you were going to bring it. I didn't want you to be the forgiving person that you turned out to be. 
Um, or there's that parable Jesus tells about the, uh, the people who are given different money to invest, you know, and the guy who buries it in the ground says, I buried it in the ground because I knew you were a jealous, uh, you know, person who reaped where he didn't sow. And like, well, wait, the, the landowner himself never said this about himself. Just this, this is what I assumed about you. And so because I assumed about it, that I acted in, according to the assumption I had about you. And maybe sometimes we make assumptions about who God is when God, it turns out, turns out to be someone rather different. You look like you're percolating on something. Oh, just because we are, um, we always record these things weeks in advance. That is definitely the, the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which I just read like two hours ago. Oh, okay. This <laughs> weekend, just like, oh, we have to, like, that's always, that's one of those texts that I find difficult to preach on. Okay. Well, in my mind, not to spend too much time on this and do our sermon homework, yeah. um, Robert Farr Capon, who's a was a, a, a physical priest and theologian and also chef. Um, but he, in his uh, exploration of that text, I think one of the things he highlights is when the, the slave who buried his coin in the ground comes forward, he says, I buried it in the ground because I knew you were, you know, uh, uh, you know I knew that you reaped where you, where you did so and you were, you know, a shrewd man and this is how you act. And Capon's like, but notice, this is this guy's assumption. This is not actually what the landowner says about himself. He's like, if that's what you thought about me, why didn't you? But he doesn't actually say, this is who I am. This is what your assumption was about me, and that's how you acted? But that we often bring those assumptions about God when it turns out. And again, we sometimes have this d- default assumption that God is like Santa Claus, bringing good things to good little boys and girls and punishment to bad little boys and girls, when Jesus does an awful lot of undoing of our expectations there, too. And, and I think what I always struggle with is that we don't see what happens if one of them had lost the money. Like, had tried to invest (laughs) in it and did the bad investment. Right, right, right. Um, But anyway, that that, that is uh, this week's upcoming sermon text. So, okay, maybe this raises for me, though, another piece that we kind of danced around in this series is the Jesus-shaped hole in this series so far. Um, and, And what I mean by that is when you're talking about violence in the Bible, well... Obviously, there's lots of instances in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's lots of images of violence that happen in the book of Revelation. There's violence that happens to Jesus. Um, We didn't talk about what's Jesus' policy and when you're allowed to kill somebody because Jesus has this really, really different approach to how we deal with the powers of evil. And it seems to me that people who claim to be people who name the name of Jesus and be followers of Jesus, that that shapes our understanding of how and when violence is acceptable, or when it is the least worst thing you can do, but that dramatically changes how we view the the whole question. Um, And that when Jesus reveals who God is, especially in like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, I know you all brought these assumptions about who God is. You've heard that it was said X or Y or Z, but I say to you, Jesus says things about God that sort of break down the assumption that God is this lightning bolt throwing copy of Zeus, and instead that God is somebody who does good things even for stinkers who deserve punishment, maybe. So, like, even in the Sermon on the Mount, you get Jesus saying, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, that's hogwash, love your enemies, and then he grounds that in, because that's what God is like. God loves God's enemies, and Jesus gives examples. God sends the sun and the rain on the good and on the stinkers as well. God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, Jesus says in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, which suggests to me Jesus' understanding of violence is grounded in what he believes about who God is, and that God is not ultimately somebody who solves problems by punching people. Um, again, that's a pretty radical shift from 
here's the, the voice from heaven saying, kill them, uh, the people in Jericho. But I guess we have to decide. Like, like we talked about in that earlier episode, do we interpret Jericho in light of Jesus, or do we interpret Jesus in light of Jericho? And if, if we say Jesus is the interpretive key, then I've got to say, I don't have permission to do what happens in the conquest story because I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't get to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but this other thing happened in the Bible that gives me permission to plunder my neighbor or invade a country because I want to, or whatever. It seems to me also that the cross itself, Christians would believe, is like this important definitive revelation about how God responds to evil. Um, and if that's right, um, then in the end, God's power is revealed not in smashing enemies to stop them, but in allowing death to happen, that God becomes a victim of violence rather than the perpetrator of violence, or God absorbs it in God's self or something, but that God breaks the logic of needing to kill people to get your way. Um, and that if the cross is primary, is like the clearest picture we get of who Jesus is, that's going to relativize everything else about when we think it's okay for me to punch somebody or kill somebody or, you know, whatever. Yeah, so, again, like, with what you're saying, I hear a lot of Gregory Boyd, because I believe you've also read that entire book. I've only read the first chapter, but okay. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very good book to everybody who's looking for a new book to read. But... Yes, like, the Jesus, like, as Christians, I think we should be reading the entirety of the Bible with the Christian lens, because who we know and understand God to be, we know through Jesus. So, God is love, is who I understand God to be because of what Jesus does. Um, and... So I'm, I should have that mindset even when I am reading the Exodus story and God is plaguing Egypt and hardening Pharaoh's heart so that God can continue to plague Egypt so that God's glory can be known. Mm -hmm. Like, that is something I have to kind of continue to wrestle with and reconcile that those two things are both true. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that, oh, this is the God of the Old Testament, and this yeah. is the God of the New Testament. No, it's the same right, God. Right, right, Yeah. I, and I guess I think that also, that reminder keeps us from, um, from cutting out the, the urgency of justice that's absolutely part of the vision of the whole Bible. Like, sometimes the, the collateral damage of saying Old Testament God is mean and New Testament God is nice is then we also are off the hook for justice as New Testament people, and I'm not sure that's fair either. Um, and we, so we need those stories to remember that ours is sort of the God who smashes down all the thrones. And, and now, like, in a sense, maybe what we need to recover is Mary's song, too. That when Mary sings the Magnificat, um, she talks about a God who takes the powerful down from their thrones and feeds the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. That's the New Testament also. Now, Jesus, now interestingly, Mary doesn't say, and because God's going to do this, I'm forming the first Marian militia and we're going to go take the thing, you know, plunder from people who we think, you know, are our enemies. But her understanding is God is up to that. God is, just like God is the one dethroning Pharaoh or, you know, setting the slaves free, um, that God's in that same line of work even in the New Testament. Um, but it's interesting to me that at no point, New Testament especially, is there this sense of, because God is at the work for justice now, we are called to be the agents who, through setting up our own armies, will go kill people to bring about the kind of righteousness we think should be there. 
because it seems awfully dangerous. Anytime we are convinced that we're doing God's work in killing people, that it becomes super tempting to decide whoever I just don't like is now, you know, like it, it was that same line of thought that led to crusades, that led to, I mean, like, it's super easy. It, it, that's exactly what the Third Reich was, too. We're the righteous people, we're the ones that God has appointed. It's uh, God's will that our nation should rule over others, therefore, we have the right to kill other people. There's, there's a, a, a quote that's been sticking with me today, and curiously enough, uh, Sarah, it was your husband who shared something on social media that stuck with me. He, he quoted a line of William Temple's, and this is the line that, that seems especially pertinent to our conversation right now. Uh, this is a line of William Temple's, who lived in the late 19th, early 20th century. It was the selfishness and loveless of the people that caused the revelation of God's love to take the form of crucifixion. It is this which commits the church to the long, arduous, self-sacrificing course of patient effort and the attainment the attainment of the divine goal. The conflict of God's love with human selfishness is the real meaning of all history. It's politics, it's diplomacy, it's wars, it's intrigues, it's aspirations. That to me seems a really important insight. It is not that God in God's nature requires somebody to die uh, or suffering to happen for there to be love, but that when love meets human rottenness, it, God's love takes the form of getting crucified rather than God taking the form of I will crush and destroy my enemies. And that seems to be something important about the nature of how God's love works. That in a vacuum, or in the, in the inter-Trinitarian relations between the persons of the Trinity, nobody has to suffer and die, but that when that comes up against or is projected up against human sinfulness, that it takes the, sh- it takes the shape of crucifixion rather than of crucifying your enemies, I guess. All that said, if you're willing, let me offer another worm or can opener for a new can of worms. Um, I have been thinking a lot lately about um, the witness and life of our older brother in the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, when he writes a book like Apostle Discipleship, sounds darn near pacifist. Sounds, mm-hmm. and, and, and Gregory Boyd, of whom we both have been speaking, uh, comes out of that Anabaptist peace tradition like the Mennonites and others, and would just be in that position of, we aren't supposed to ever kill people, that's not okay. Um, and it, I do think it is worth noting, for at least the first 325 years, that was pretty universal Christian policy. We don't kill people in the name of Jesus. We don't get to do that. We, uh, Tertullian said when, uh, when Jesus disarmed uh, Peter, he disarmed the church forever. You know, in that scene in the garden when he mm-hmm. said, Peter, don't take up your sword, Tertullian said, for all of us, we're not supposed to take up weapons again. For 300 years, that was our standard policy. Um, Anyway, Bonhoeffer is a, a, you know, lives during the, the Nazi regime and, and before that in Germany as a German citizen um, and eventually became a part of the resistance and was willing to be a part of a resistance cell that was making plans to assassinate Hitler, to, to kill Hitler. And Bonhoeffer has to wrestle with, like, are there times when all the choices in front of me are terrible and all of them involve violence and is it sometimes permissible to do one violent thing if it prevents other violence or something like that. And um, Bonhoeffer seems to me a particularly helpful witness in that, because he does, he's not sloppy. He doesn't go, yeah, sometimes you can't help but kill people, just you know, make sure your aim is true and good luck hunting. But he sort of wrestles with this, like, there's no choice I have that isn't sinful. And I think that's the thing I most respect about Bonhoeffer, is that he doesn't think, he doesn't think there's always got to be a, a choice that's acceptable, and it, if it means I've got to kill somebody, then it can't, that must not be sinning. I think Bonhoeffer is at a point of realism of 
I don't know what else to do. I can't allow this to continue. I'm willing to be a part of this resistance cell. I'm willing to let that be a part of a plot that, yes, will kill another human being. I cannot be a part of allowing the, war, the Nazi war machine to continue. He needs to be stopped. Um, and he was okay with being a part of that resistance movement. And yet, I think Bonhoeffer would have said, and it's also probably a sinful thing that I am, but I don't know how not to in this moment. Um, that can get sloppy too, but I think something like that is the kind of wrestling we need to do. And, and I guess I want to recognize there are times when I don't know what options we have that don't involve some kind of violence. And it's a question maybe of what kind of violence we can live with. Um, but there are times when... Uh, you know, like everybody uses those like those examples of you know, if, if an intruder broke into your house and was waving a gun at your family, what would you do? And like, in an ideal world, Batman would show up and you know throw a battering at him and stop him. Ha! Look at that. But that doesn't always happen. Well, yeah. What would you do? And would it be possible that yeah, I'm, I might have to do some kind of violence to stop somebody from hurting my child or something like that? But does that solve it? I don't know. Probably not. I really appreciate Bonhoeffer's wrestling, wrestling with pacifism as he also planned to assassinate Hitler. Yeah. Because it takes away that hypothetical yeah. question because I don't think I can honestly answer what I would do in the event of a home invasion with somebody waving a gun in the faces of my children. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I would have a fight or a flight or a freezing moment. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, because mm -hmm. it's never happened to me. Whereas we could, you know, asking ourselves what would we do in this situation with Hitler yeah. is... Yes, it's hypothetical in the sense that we are not actually in Nazi Germany with Hitler reigning terror <laughs> on so many people. Like, that's not where we are right now. But it gives us a context that is not hypothetical. Right, right, right. And I think one of the things that's helpful about that historical example is it allows us to think in a reason not original. Yeah, because like, the hypothetical about a burglar like, requires you to think immediately on your feet, what would you do in that moment? I, I don't know, I'm probably half asleep and I'm not really thinking clearly either, but the, the case study or the thought experience of, of Bonhoeffer allows us to think, yeah, what, what is acceptable or not acceptable and why would I or wouldn't I? I guess the other question that I would raise is, um, how much do we have to take responsibility for the consequences of our actions that ripple out even if what we think we're doing in the moment is good? Um, like, so imagine the home invasion scenario. The burglar breaks into my house, and I think, I'm righteous, I will stop them from hurting my children. I will kill this person who's coming to my house. Um, well, that person has kids, and maybe it's not fair that that person now has to grow up without a dad or a mom, depending on the gender of the burglar. Um, but, like, now I've caused further problems. Does that perpetuate the rottenness in the world in ways that I've got to deal with? And I'm not saying that I should take, you know, give a survey to every burglar and say, hold on, before I shoot you, quick, tell me, tell me your next of kin. Um, but like to say, like, I think we do bear responsibility for the ripple effect. And me just looking out only for my immediate needs in a moment seems to me like as much as possible I've got to be thinking a little bit broader. And maybe that makes the difference between me trying to disarm an invader versus it doesn't matter if you broke into my house, I can kill him. Maybe, maybe I don't go down that track and instead, like, I don't know what this person's family situation is like. I'm going to do my very, very best not to cause further harm to other people. I need to stop them from harming my loved ones, but I also don't want to allow other ripple effects to other people. And I think that goes back to the cross for me. Yeah. That Jesus' self-sacrificial love is that 
wasn't Jesus being self-centered and thinking about just himself and his life and what he wants out of life, but rather what is going to be best for others. Like, you know, Jesus was continually lifting up the marginalized, lifting up the lowly, and likewise, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to model my life after Jesus's, I think then I need to also be concerned with the other, you know, mm -hmm. the person who is not me, right. but rather, you know, yeah, somebody is invading my home, I need to protect my children and my spouse, but also, there's probably a reason why this person is invading my home, and it's probably, you know, desperation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not just because, oh yeah, I need something fun to do, but right. rather there's probably some underlying societal problem sure. that has driven this person to do something so extreme. And I get that, like, in that moment, again, we're making a lot of a hypothetical, but like, I get in that moment, it is not feasible to say, let's have a therapy session, and let's talk about your problems. I, I, I'm not so enamored of Mr. Rogers that I think that in that moment you can, just let's talk about your feelings and pound some clay. Um, but I do think that in the non-emergency, non-crisis, non-middle-of-the-night break-in moments, if we can think out, you know what, sometimes there's a third way between I have to kill somebody or they have to kill me. Wait, sometimes there are creative third options. And what does that look like? Well, again, maybe, maybe it's my response is, what are the strategies I've used to disarm somebody uh, and also call the authorities or something like that, rather than, you enter my house, automatically all, all bets are off, I get to shoot you because I can. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm forced to be more creative and to think differently um, than just, I'm justified in whatever I do to you because you broke into my house. And in a, in a wider picture, I think that suggests, too, in, even in international relations, sometimes the choice isn't, do we conquer them or let them conquer us? There's a lot of other choices that don't resolve, that don't, that don't end up in killing each other. It is sometimes tempting to think the only way to solve problems is rattle our sabers or threaten to kill people. But there's a lot of other ways to solve problems. And maybe it is tempting for us to always want to have clear good guys and clear bad guys. But especially when you're talking about the messiness of corporate human life in communities or in nations one and another, it's not pure one side is good and one side is evil. Unless you're talking about literally conquering Poland because you're like, there's some things that are, yep, that was a clear act of aggression, or Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait or something like that. Um, but a lot of times things are a lot messier and don't necessarily uh, simplify to one side is the good guys and one side is the bad guys. And even in the nation of the quote-unquote bad guys, there's a lot of people who maybe aren't happy with what their government did and shouldn't be the victims either of, of uh, what their government did. I'm not sure that solves our questions about just war theory or anything, but like we said at the beginning, I'm not sure that was our intent. How are you, how are you living with, with all of our conversation, and I guess like, uh, how, how, how do you, having spent all this time in all these passages, Erica, what, what it, what's the... What's the payoff for you? What, okay, so what? So as, as I'm listening, especially to these hypotheticals about the <laughs> invasion and the home burglary, um, you know, and, and, and just the fact that we're talking about thinking through these things and like the different options, just like Bonhoeffer did. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, as, as somebody who is friends with a lot of gun owners, um, who, is, who is a responsible gun owner herself, like that's something that I kind of think through. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm going to have something in my house that I can do violence with, mm -hmm. 
then I need to think through the, these things. And I think, unfortunately, far too often, we just assume somebody comes into my house, mm-hmm. it is my rights, castle law, you know, like, right. I'm going to do whatever I have to to take them down. Um, where if, if we take the time to wrestle with things like this and, you know, mm-hmm. put ourselves, like, in bon hover shoes or, or wrestle with these passages, um... Hopefully, we will be able to figure out that third way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes just instincts happen. Like, Sarah, yeah. you said you wouldn't know. You would run or, or fight or just freeze. Like, I don't know either. Like, mm-hmm. I'd like to think that I could defend, you know, myself or my family. Um, but probably I would freeze mm-hmm. because I'm a coward. Um, you know, but I, I think just the wrestling with these things and thinking about these things... Um, in the culture that we live in, you know, with so much violence going around, and, and in the area in which we live in, we, you know, there's a lot of folks in our area that are gun owners, mm-hmm. good, responsible people that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying the whack jobs that, you know, are going to go and shoot up the Walmart just because they're mad at somebody, but, you know, if, if you're going to live that kind of lifestyle, that's something that you're going to have in your home, um, you need to be able to have thought these things out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. beforehand. And so this has given me a lot to think about, um, you know, just when I have conversations with, with my friends that, that own guns and, mm-hmm. and other things, um, and just the way I handle my own, you know, I, sure. I use it for target practice. Like mm-hmm. that's, uh, I have no intention to ever use it for self-defense. It's just a fun hobby of mine. Um, but you know, someday I hope to have a husband and kids, and you got, you know you got to think through sure. um, what could happen. It's fascinating to me how that dramatically changes the emotional calculus of questions like this. Like mm-hmm. there was a time in my life when, before I was married, where it was just sort of like, you know what? If somebody broke into my house and it was just by me, I'd be willing to die. That's okay. I'm not yeah. going to kill somebody else. And like, oh, now there's other human beings for whose mm-hmm. life I'm responsible. And that make again, there's a face on it now, and this is a lot more complicated because it's not about I'm willing to lay down my life, but I'm all, oh wait, there's other people who you know need me around to yeah. in bed at night, um, and that makes it messier. And I think I think for me that's like in in Bonhoeffer's case, what makes it so helpful for me looking at his example that like he could write in the abstract a really passive sounding book like The Cost of Discipleship, and then when it came to, down to oh, an actual Hitler and actually about mm-hmm. you know the Holocaust and things like that, oh my goodness, I have to participate in this thing. And yet he also feels like sometimes you have no choice but to do things that you would also say are sinful. And and again, maybe that's a part of the Lutheran tradition's recognition. Sometimes you can't help but sin boldly. Um, And sometimes, though, I think Lutherans use that in a sloppy way that just lets us off the hook of, here's the thing I want to do. It's sinful, but sometimes you've got to sin boldly because I'm going to do what I want. And to me, Bonhoeffer gives an example of the wrestling um, that it's not an easy choice for him to do what he does. Um, and also he knows it's going to cost him reputation because it means that he had to go places and look like he was loyal to the Fuhrer and say, you know, he had to say those Heil Hitlers, those Greek people he worked with, um, instead of being an, an outspoken, uh, you know, only under his, his work involved passing papers to people, but he had to look like he was working for the, the Nazi government. And that's even like how... How, how comfortable are we with, with that kind of that, That's even more complicated. And if he gets caught by the murder, <laughs> right. you know, and, he, and he did, yeah. You know, there, there's just so many things that you have to wrestle with there. Yeah. Um, sometimes I wonder if there's a philosophy of, of the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. 
Mm-hmm. I forget which one, you know. That sounds like utilitarianism. Yeah. Right? And, you know, and how much do we let those kind of things influence our decisions? Sure, sure. Because honestly, if Bonhoeffer would have been able to be successful in killing Hitler, mm-hmm. the war would have ended much sooner. We would have had, you know, at least... We well, can hope. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because, like, I know other people who, not to get into the minutia of World War II, there are other people who think Hitler was a terrible strategist, and if he would have been out of the picture, the generals would have taken over. They could have won the war because they didn't have this crazy ego yeah, stuff to deal with. There's even um, I don't know if any of you were fans of the Dirty Dozen, that famous war movie about a bunch of criminals who get to fight Nazis. Well, they made a sequel called The Dirty Dozen Two, and The Dirty <laughs> Dozen Two is a whole bunch of different criminals because eleven of twelve of them died in the first one. But in the second one, their job is to stop a plot to assassinate Hitler because they think if, if Hitler dies, the generals will make the war drag on a whole lot longer. And if you actually want to end the war, you have to let the crazy person be in charge because he'll make a bunch of blunders. So it's this crazy movie about stopping the people trying to stop Hitler in order to stop the war machine, um, which is a whole... You know, that, that, that's an interesting thought experiment. But to me, it raises that really interesting question of if I'm convinced that it's permissible to stop Hitler... Wait, I also haven't gamed out what are the ways that, that might have negative implications that yeah. I can't control. And that, to me, that's the, the Achilles heel of utilitarianism, is mm-hmm. saying my principle is I want to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people requires me to do a lot of guessing about how things will turn out, but I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And to me, it seems like, at least for, for Christians, it is important to temper whatever our thought of the greatest good is with the character of what Jesus looks like, um, because otherwise we're, we, we'll end up giving ourselves permission to do terrible things because we said it was in the name of doing good. Or we'll end up doing things that in the immediate aspect looked good but had terrible repercussions that we did not anticipate happening. Um, I mean, like, even play out the, the, the biblical story. There's, there's Joseph who gets sold into slavery, gets to be vice president of all of Egypt, and says, you know, what well, you, you, my brothers, intended for evil when you sent me into slavery, God used for good. Well, that's great, because people are saved. But that also is the mechanism that allows them all to be enslaved a generation or two later. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a second. So do we say that Joseph's action was bad now? Because it meant, to me that seems like we end up playing a lot of games of who decides at what point we check. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? How many people did it do yeah. good or bad for? And that's a lot harder. To, to me, it seems important to say whatever our actions are, somehow they've got to be Jesus-shaped. And in particular, mm-hmm. cross-shaped. Rather than what, the thing I do, I'm convinced will be good for more people than the thing you want to do. Because, I, I, I don't know, pretty quickly we, we can't control the consequences. As I say, hindsight's 24. <laughs> right, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, good, I hope if you've been listening, um, you've discovered there are no easy answers for any of these things. Um, I, I guess I would say thanks to all of you, thanks to both of you as conversation partners for being willing to be a part of this challenging series um, and for the willingness to keep wrestling through the challenges of life. Thanks, everybody. See you. Bye.